You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. Today, we are going to continue our series on dominion. We're on part five. Uh, We're going to talk about something that might be a little bit difficult. So brace yourself for that. Maybe not the best opening, but brace yourself for that because most of us, myself included, really struggle with this concept. Now, last week we started the section of Dominion on cultural engagement. We're going to continue that today. Last week we talked about that, yes, we must engage the culture around us and that when we engage the culture, we should engage it the way that Jesus engaged the culture. And that is with grace and with truth. And today we're going to talk about a difficult posture, I think, that oftentimes I miss and many of us miss, and that is the posture of humility. Humility. Now, I've been preaching uh, the gospel for nearly 30 years now. Lots and lots and lots and lots of sermons and sermonettes and, and you name it, Bible studies, you name it. And I want to share with you the worst preaching point I have ever made, by far, hands down, in the history of my time preaching the gospel. Again, almost 30 years. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. The worst preaching point, the worst thing I have ever said from a platform declaring the gospel. Um, I'm going to put that in quotes on this one. And... uh it was years ago, I was on a stage in a youth ministry in Colorado Springs where I was the youth pastor. And it was during an election season, just like we are in right now. Uh, I believe that we were working our youth group through sort of this idea of what does it look like to be involved in in politics and civic, uh, re, you know, engagements, if you will. And we did like a mock vote. Now, mind you, As I was doing all this stuff, the church that I was in, um, as they are still today, was deeply, deeply embroiled in um, and enmeshed in sort of an idea of Christian nationalism. And so it was very much a a, uh, dominion-minded church, very much a, a, a sort of echo chamber of right wing politics. And you might think that that's not bad, but you're going to follow me on this and you'll see where we're going with this. And so I was deeply enmeshed in this sort of right wing echo chamber, Fox News-esque environment and culture myself. And as I stood on this platform teaching young people, I remember it like it was yesterday, I made this declaration to these young people. I said this, I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and a Democrat. I'm just saying that I don't know how it is possible. Let me say it again. I This is my worst preaching point ever. I said, I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and a Democrat. I'm just saying that I don't know how it's possible. Now, I tried to throw a caveat in there to sort of let myself off the hook to, to, to say, well, I'm, I didn't say that you can't be. But really what I did say was that you couldn't be a Christian and a Democrat at the same time. And not only did I say it, I declared it. 
I, I said it with such surety and, and definitiveness in my voice that this was truth. And to be honest with you, it was a lie. It was arrogant. It was ego-filled, sophomoric, moronic, really. Uh, I had gotten caught up in the tribalism of partisan politics. I had gotten caught up in the idea of demonizing the other. Someone who thinks differently than I, I demonized them. I was broad brushing their ideas. I was turning them into caricatures of my enemies and othering them, if you will. And it wasn't until years after I made that declaration, when I was removed from that sort of echo chamber culture, that I recognized the depth of my own depravity, that I recognized how atrocious of a moment it was when I took the Lord's name in vain and made a declaration about God and the people of God that was not founded or supported by the word of God. And in that moment, I recognized how deeply I needed to repent and how important it is to approach the scriptures, other people with humility. And that time I was making definitive statements from a very limited perspective. It was to say as if my own story or my own perspective was the only perspective. And that everybody else needed to sort of get on board with how I saw everything. That this should also be everybody else's perspective. Do you hear the arrogance in that? The, the ego-filled, ah, it, just, it burdens my heart even now when I talk about it. It's probably the most regretful thing I've said from a pulpit. No, it is the most regretful thing I've said from a pulpit. And I think too often this is the way that we as believers engage our culture. We speak with these sort of definitives. And, and sure, there are definitives in the kingdom of God. We believe that there are these non-negotiable, closed-fist ideas that, that the Trinity and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Creator in Heaven, that Jesus came. You know, the, the, the things that we hold to, the creedal things that we declare, yes, those are non-negotiables. But oftentimes we engage culture with these sort of definitive ideas is in arrogant, ego-filled statements. Matter of fact, it broke my heart recently. A friend of mine who himself I'm noticing is caught up in going deeper deep, and deeper into extreme sort of Christian nationalism. And I've reached out to him to talk to him about these ideas. But recently he said this. He said, if you are a Christian and my posts trigger you, then there's a strong chance you're not reading your Bible. That's to say that everybody should read the Bible or interpret the Bible exactly the same way that this man reads and interprets the Bible. That's to eliminate the fact that every single person has a different lens, a different story that they're coming from, a different way in which they view it. It's not that everybody gets to interpret the Bible however they want to interpret the Bible. Absolutely not. 
But we must be careful that we don't say our interpretation of the Bible and our interpretation of culture is the only interpretation of the Bible or of culture. That we have sort of on lock the only way in which we can view scripture, the only way in which we can engage in politics. Again, that's not to say that there aren't uh, non-negotiables. There are non-negotiables in the text. But all of the text doesn't declare to us definitively how we should engage with culture. And so therefore it requires humility. We must realize that this whole idea of cultural engagement is not a zero-sum game. We are not called to dominate culture. However, it seems to me, based on the things that I'm reading, the articles that I'm reading, the, 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 the posts that I'm seeing from Christians, the, the, the messages that I'm hearing from some pastors, it seems to me that we have bought into this idea that we are supposed to dominate culture. And so therefore we proclaim, whether by our voices or by our actions, that because we have the truth, therefore we should make the rules. That we know better than everybody else because we have the truth, we should make the rules. And that's not necessarily true. Yes, we have the truth, but just because we have the truth doesn't mean that we have to force everybody else to follow by our rules. No, we come under the rule and dominion of the kingdom of God, and we are responsible to live under that dominion and rule, but we're not responsible to dominate others and force others to come under that sort of rule. So when it comes to engaging culture, posture is paramount. When it comes to engaging culture, posture is paramount. We must have a posture of humility. Now, to broaden this idea a little bit farther, sort of to lay the groundwork before we talk about humility a little bit further, um, recently, politically speaking, Lifeway Research, who is sort of the, uh, uh, the the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, right? Um, Lifeway Research did a a survey recently, and I'm gonna put uh, I'm gonna put this graph on the screen so you can see what I'm talking about. But they did a survey of registered voters who claim evangelical beliefs. So these are registered voters who claim that, yes, I live by sort of the belief system of an evangelical. And what they asked them is they asked them this question, who do you hope your presidential vote benefits the most? Who do you hope, you can see it on your screen, who do you hope your presidential vote benefits the most? 20% of those evangelicals said, me and my family. I hope that the vote that I cast for the president impacts me or benefits me and my family the most. Now, 20%, you might think, well, that's not that big of a deal. Uh, 41% said people nationwide who are like me. Now, I don't know if you're hearing this, but 61% in this particular survey, and I know data points can be moved, whatever, however, but in this particular survey of evangelicals, 61% of them basically said, I hope that my vote benefits a self-centeredness, me, my family, and people who think, act, and look like 
me. Now, let's not be naive here, okay? We know that there is no such thing as a holy altruistic vote. There's no, there's not one person who's like, I'm going to cast my vote for the others and I'm just going to eliminate my own benefits or my own opinions. No, everybody has some skin in the game. Everybody is voting for some of their own benefit, but it becomes a problem when we are making decisions, which voting is a big decision based solely off of a self-centered idea. I want it to benefit me, my family, or those who look just like me. Now, Scott McConnell, when, when all this research was gathered, Scott McConnell, who's the executive director of LifeWay Research, sort of summarized this data this way. He said, few Americans with evangelical beliefs will be casting a, quote, good Samaritan vote on election day. Instead, most will vote to the benefit though well most will vote to benefit those like them or their family. And I think that that's concerning when we talk about what it looks like to engage culture. What does it look like to have a a, a posture of humility in engaging culture? I think that we can, say that it's quite possible that we have lost the heart of Christ when it comes to engaging our culture. That we have lost the mind of Christ when it comes to engaging our culture. That we have indeed lost the posture of Christ when it comes to engaging our culture. What is that posture? That posture is humility. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and all cards on the table here. I forgot to bring my Bible out here, so let me read it. Let me switch over here to the internet and read it from the internet. Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11, and here's what it says. So let's look at this from a biblical perspective. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he's encouraging them, and he says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him uh, the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Paul explaining to the church in Philippi Christ's example of humility, calling the church to live by this same sort of humility. And interestingly, Paul here starts with a list of sort of rhetorical questions. He's not actually asking the questions. These should already be given. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the spirit, any sort of affection or sympathy. What he's saying in these rhetorical questions is that these are basics of the, the basics of the Christian experience that he knows that the people uh, in the church in Philippi have experienced all of these things greatly and deeply. And so he's saying, listen, these are the basics of the Christian experience. And so unify around these things. He's like, this is what will fulfill my joy. This is what will fulfill your joy. That if you have this same mind, this same heart, the same love, the same unity around what Christ has done for us, what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, then let us unify around this idea. And this opening that he gives in the first couple of verses of chapter 2 here, this should really root us deeply in Christ. This should afford us the opportunity to stop our useless striving, which how many of you know, whenever we get in the, uh, into a place where we're arrogant and ego-filled, usually it's because we're trying to prove something. It's because we're trying to strive to make some sort of statement or to prove something. But this, this, uh, these rhetorical questions, these should root us deeply in Christ, affording us the opportunity to stop our useless striving. And they sort of set the stage for Paul's call to the church, to the people of God, to take up humility just like Christ took up humility. Now the word humility, let's define that quickly. It's the noble choice to forego your status, to deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Or more simply, and I love how this is worded, you could say the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service to in service of others. A the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of or for others. I use this quote all the time when I talk about humility because it's so succinct and makes so much sense. C.S. Lewis, the great author, said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. 
It's not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not this daily ritual of berating myself, putting myself down, making myself into a doormat. No, it's not thinking less of myself. I was created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. That does not need to be reduced but it is thinking of myself less, meaning I need to be looking to the needs of others, the power that has been afforded to me. Whatever that may be, the privileges that I have, whatever those may be, I need to use them, hold them in service to, for others. Now, I believe in Philippians 2, you could probably extract a lot of key verses today. I think that the key verse would be this. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we're talking about cultural engagement where posture is paramount, where we need a posture of humility. Verse four brings it all home when it says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As Scott McConnell, uh, the executive director of Lifeway Research in his quote talked about that very few will be casting a quote, good Samaritan vote. This is what we mean by that. The story of the good Samaritan as those with power walked around the man who was beaten and left half dead. I would encourage you to go read the story. But those in power, the priest um, who walks by on the other side of the road, the, the Pharisee who walks by on the other side of the road, sort of representing the law, representing sort of religious order, as they sort of looked out for their own interest only and crossed the street and went on their way, ignoring the man half dead in the ditch. They refused to use the power that they had to care for, to serve the one in need. And here comes the Samaritan who's willing to take all of his power, which was not much, willing to risk a lot, willing to give of his own resources in order to care for this man, more than likely a Jewish man in the parable who had been beaten and left half dead so that he could be healed. This is what we mean by this idea. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, it's important to note here that he doesn't say that our interests don't matter. That's not what he's saying. He is saying our interests aren't all that matters. My interests aren't all that matters. And that's an important distinction. He's not, he doesn't say that your interests don't matter. He's saying that your interests aren't all that matters, that others matter. And we must take others into consideration. So here's a few things that he lines out just before verse four of how can we look not only to our own interests, but also look to others' interests. Real quick, he says, first of all, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. If you're taking notes, you could write down one, eliminate selfishness. Eliminate selfishness. We must do an honest assessment of our own motives here. 
look deeply into our own heart and assess our own motives. And if we are honest, much of what we do is not out of love for others, but for selfish gain. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing from selfish ambition. That's not to say that there isn't good ambition. There is ambition that leads to glorifying God. So it's not saying be lazy or have no ambition whatsoever. No, he's saying do nothing out of selfish ambition where I and I alone am the driving factor behind the ambition that I have, that I am working towards my benefit and my good alone. Do nothing. Eliminate selfishness. Do nothing from self ambition. And he also throws in this word conceit. This word conceit is probably best defined in the Greek as empty glory. Empty glory. It's this idea of excessive self-interest and self-preoccupation. We've all ran into those people. Maybe we've recognized it in ourselves. I know that I have. This conceit, this ego, this arrogance, this preoccupation with our own selves, this empty glory. And Paul says, do nothing from this place of of conceit. Eliminate selfishness. Now, the world sort of thrives on selfish ambition. We all know that. We probably heard the phrase that it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, right? Why? Because in the world's mind, success is paramount and nearly any means to that end are acceptable. No matter what you have to do to climb that corporate ladder, nearly all means to that end are acceptable as long as you obtain success. Why? Because it's a dog eat dog world out there. Anything goes or almost anything. And so in the world, we realize that there's a thriving on selfish ambition. There's a thriving on conceit, on this overly puffed up idea of oneself. It's oftentimes applauded and rewarded, especially in the corporate world. But the kingdom of God is not this way. We got to eliminate selfishness. And selfishness tends to overestimate our own value. It tends to overestimate our own contribution to society, overestimate our own perspective or our own story as if our story or our perspective is the story or the perspective. And so we must eliminate selfishness. C.H. Spurgeon said, humility is to make a right estimate, estimate of one's self. Selfishness makes a wrong estimate of one's self, an overinflated estimate of one's self. Let us be people who eliminate selfishness. And secondly, let us be people who elevate significance, elevate significance. He goes on to say, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more significant. Now, this concept was extremely foreign in the era of the early church. 
It was an ideal or an ethic that sort of set the early church apart from the world. Matter of fact, uh, Richard C.H. Uh, Lenski, who's a Lutheran pastor and was a New Testament theologian in regards to this idea of uh, counting others more significant. He said this, the pagan and the secular idea of manhood is self-assertiveness, imposing one's will on others. When anyone stooped to others, he did so only under compulsion. Hence, his action was disgraceful. The Christian ethical idea of humility could not be reached by the secular mind because it lacked the spiritual soil. So we need this sort of spiritual soil in our life, this sort of rootedness in Christ. As we talked about the rhetorical questions that Paul opens with, we need this sort of rootedness, spiritual soil in Christ so that we can function in humility in a way that we can count others as more significant than ourselves. That we can begin to ask the questions and live out sort of this idea of what sort of intrinsic value or significance do we ascribe to our neighbors? What sort of uh, intrinsic value or significance should I be ascribing to my neighbor? Or, or how about this? What sort of significance or intrinsic value should I be ascribing to my enemy? Do I see the Imago Dei? And those who don't look just like me, do I see and value the Imago Dei, the image of God in those who don't think the way that I think? Do I think or believe that those people who are different than I am, do I believe that they are worthy of dignity, equal dignity to me? Am I willing to elevate their significance in my life? Am I willing to place them above me and count them as more significant than I am? Do I believe that their story, that their perspective, that their voice matters as well? This is what Paul is calling us to when he says, in humility, count others more significant. C.S. Lewis said, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. Now, if you think this idea that we're throwing out here today about humility is too difficult. You might even think that it's impossible. Let us turn to the next section of this text and remind us of what Jesus demonstrated for us. Verses 5 through 8 in Philippians chapter 2 here, many people believe was a hymn that was sung in the early church, but it beautifully depicts and shows us the way of Jesus, that this idea of humility is indeed attainable. So let me wrap it up by reading this and let's meditate on this text this week. It says this, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi that we can draw from even now in the 21st century in this cultural environment that is filled with angst and anger, bitterness and hatred towards one another. And we, the people of God, can step in with a posture of humility and demonstrate what it looks like to be a people who eliminate selfishness and who elevate the significance of the other. Help us to posture ourselves as Jesus postured himself that he was willing to take on the form of a servant, that he was willing to become poor, the scripture says, putting on human flesh so that we could become rich through him, that he embraced the cross for the sake of our salvation. May we be a people who hold the power that we have in service to others, that as we engage in this cultural environment that we're in, we would do so with a posture of humility. In Jesus' name, amen. And before you go, let me pray this blessing over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.